0: Hi, I'm Andrew, and welcome to the Reviewer Two Does Geoengineering podcast. Today, I'm here with Doug McMartin, a fellow grease monkey, and we're going to be talking about all things related to the engineering of geoengineering. Thank you for coming on the show, Doug.
1: Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Jolly good. So um, I understand that you've, you and I have got a uh, perhaps a, a slightly different concept um, uh, of what engineering might mean, and and some of your, uh, some of the uh listeners will will also uh, not have a clear understanding of the term as you apply it so you we were speaking just before the show and and, and you were explaining that uh, you don't view engineering as just being the nuts and bolts so could you give us an understanding of what you view as being uh like the bounds of the term engineering
1: broadly speaking i'd say that's taking a design approach to the problem as opposed to just a science approach right like scientists sort of study the world as it is and or Try to learn about how things work and engineers try to actually solve the problem and say here's how we here, here's how to make it do what we want it to do
0: okay so you're so that, viewing... that's a little
1: broader than just say like the deployment or delivery mechanisms
0: okay so what you're what you're doing there is you are considering the entire subject of geoengineering to be an engineering challenge whereas frankly it's not normally viewed in that way it's normally viewed as an environmental science issue, and most of the people who work on it don't have a background in engineering. They have a background in environmental science. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I'd say most of the people have a background, well, I'd call it climate science broadly, but uh, um, yeah, there's relatively few of us with a background in engineering. And, you know, if you were to ever do this, it would be the world's biggest engineering problem that humanity has ever done.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of engineering, right?
1: Yeah, it's kind of ironic that there's some people who sort of say, oh, we shouldn't use the word geoengineering because it's not engineering. I'm like, well, <laughs> go look up what the definition of engineering is, applying scientific principles to solve a problem.
0: <laughs> OK, so um, your some of your work has been quite innovative in, in that regard, and you've done... Um, some projects, uh, and I think that we've referred to them on the the show, I think at one point we might have had one of your co-authors on who've looked at the design uh, of uh, geoengineering schemes as an engineering problem, and you've uh, particularly pioneered the use of feedback and control, so this is a relatively niche discipline of, sort of sub-discipline of engineering that most people perhaps haven't heard of or, or are familiar with but I know from my Limited understanding from my undergraduate days that control theory is a really important part of how to make uh, machines and systems work. So, do you want to touch briefly on the the work that you've done in uh, uh, control theory um, as applied to geoengineering?
1: Yeah. So basically, control theory or feedback design—it's basically how you make something work despite uncertainty. So that's how you get your airplane to fly. It's how you—you know—when you take a shower in the morning. You know, it's a little too cold. You turn the knob up. It's a little too hot. You turn the knob down. Um, and so, it's basically, apply the same idea in uh, geoengineering around a climate model, and basically say, you know, we don't know exactly what the sensitivity is. Rather than just saying, let's go inject five teragrams of sulfur dioxide or whatever into the stratosphere and see what happens. And it's like, well, let's actually. Nobody's ever going to do that in reality, right? If something. If you, if you put that much in and you go, whoa, it's too cold, you're gonna put less in. If you put that much in and you go, well, it's still too warm, you're gonna put a little bit more in. So it's basically uh, doing that properly, adjusting how okay, much- Okay, and, you and so
0: control is about the you know the speed at which you change the input in response to changes in output. Is that right?
1: It's basically, it's the algorithm, the idea that you basically monitor the output. You look at what's actually happening and you use that to adjust your decisions.
0: Okay. So in practical terms, how would a, an algorithm like that work? I mean, would you review the injections annually or would you, would you review them on a day-to-day basis? Uh, how would you hope to distinguish the signal from the noise in terms of making sure that you weren't uh, changing your injections with every passing cloud?
1: Yeah, so that because of that, you basically need to do it on more like an annual timescale. Okay. And, you know, there's just to be clear, there's a slight distinction between how you would do this in a model and how it would actually happen in the real world if anyone was ever going to deploy something, right? Because what we're doing in a model, we're running the model for a year, we're looking at what happens and we're making a slight tweak. And it's a little unclear what sort of governance arrangements for this technology would permit that sort of uh, slight, you you know, Okay, it's this is a bureaucracy year we put in a, little a bit control more...
0: systems algorithm, right?
1: Yeah, basically, you've got to imagine that, that these decisions are ultimately being made by pu- people, not by computers, and those people are going to be you know, influenced by the political process.
0: Is, is that wise? I mean, is it, is it not possible that the politicians could vote to delegate the dis- decision making on a day to day basis to um, uh, an electronic system that would make the Decisions for them. Is that is that not feasible?
1: It works perfectly fine for lots of other applications. You manage the electrical grid, for example. You know, we don't make political decisions about that. We just trust that the the people who design the electrical grid know how to operate it. You know, okay. If you decide whether to open a dam or let a little bit more water flow through, that's that's not a political decision, but so it's a little unclear exactly how this would work. So- the closest to well, now, I, I would like nothing before. more
0: than to sweep the social scientists out of the way and let the engineers take control. I'm sure <laughs> it would all be much better if we could only do that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, you talked about the broader control aspects, but what I really want to um, drill down into here is is the oft-neglected issue of delivery and distribution, um, because that that's what people might perhaps be more uh, mindful of when they're talking about the engineering of geoengineering so do you want to talk us through the basics of the engineering challenge what why is it not easy to do the engineering that we need to do for the various different types of geoengineering what are, what are the challenges that we face in terms of the technology gap
1: so uh, let's start with so stratospheric aerosol injection is sort of the main approach that we been talking about, it's the only approach that we know with absolute certainty we could make work just by watching what happens after a volcanic eruption. And the challenge there is you want to get material high enough up into the atmosphere. So in the tropics, you want to get it at least 20 kilometers and you'd be better off if you could get it at like 23 or 25 kilometers up. And you can build airplanes, for example, that get to that altitude but nobody's ever designed or built an airplane that can get to that altitude with any reasonable payload.
0: And why is that? Why, why don't we fly in airliners that are flying 25, 30 kilometers high? What's the, what's the reason that things like that haven't been built before?
1: Uh, there's no need to. And the challenge is that the higher up you go, the less dense the
0: air is. But surely that's an advantage. If you're flying to Australia, then your drag is almost hundred percent of where the energy goes, right? So wouldn't it make sense to make airliners that fly in the thinnest possible air?
1: Well, your lift goes down as well and you still need to support the weight of the airplane and your engines also breathe air on most airplanes. So until you're in rocket technology, you're using the air as a oxidizer to burn your fuel and so the higher up you go the harder it is to do that
0: okay but i mean these are all you know surmountable limitations it's widely seen as being possible to build uh, aircraft capable of delivering geoengineering precursors to the stratosphere and, and if it's possible to do that if they can fly and these will be you know quite heavy aircraft they're not you're not talking about you know toy gliders or drones or anything like that you're talking about decent sized planes that are at least the size of a small airliner if not a large one um why 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 wouldn't it make sense to go through the same design challenges to create passenger airliners that would then have far less drag and therefore far lower fuel consumption
1: well they wouldn't actually have less drag because your drag is also dependent on your lift and so you if you're going to go up to higher altitude you need uh, you're going to need bigger engines, you're going to need bigger wings, uh, you still need to generate that lift, and that and the process of generating that lift, you're going to generate more drag.
0: Okay, so it's not just a case of uh, when you fly in thinner air, you have lower drag, because you have to make compromises in the airframe design, and the design of the, the engines, that, that means that there's a trade-off, and the airliners are quite happy flying where they are at the moment, they don't need to fly any higher, right? Yeah,
1: it's basically they're flying at roughly the optimum altitude for flying okay.
0: and what 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 is it about the altitudes that you talked about? So you obviously you want to get into the stratosphere, which is when the Earth uh, the Earth's atmosphere starts getting warmer as you go up, not colder as you go up, as you're familiar with in the troposphere where we all live, um, and and we need to inject into that layer. But but within that, um, you you gave a, a range of you saying that in the tropics it's about twenty kilometers and up to about twenty five. Why is it an advantage to go to somewhere around 25, but not an advantage to go higher?
1: So there's a couple of things that are going on. So the tropopause, the, the boundary between the troposphere and the stratosphere, uh, the further away you are from that, the more efficient your geoengineering is. Um, and why is that? So part of that is just that whatever you put up has to come down. So we're okay. going to, the closer it is to the tropopause, I guess I should back up a little bit, right? So the stratosphere is stable. So everybody knows hot air rises. The troposphere, where we live, the surface is warmed by the sun. And so that hot air then rises up and you get a very unstable atmosphere with all the storms and rain and everything we're used to. And once Much you like above, a pan on
0: the hob, right? All the heat goes yeah. into the bottom and therefore it roils and boils and t- highly, highly turbulent. And your peas jump around in the pan as you cook them.
1: Yeah. And then once you get to the stratosphere, now it's uh, warmed from above because the ozone... Like a grill. Um, well, my backyard grill is actually still warmed from the bottom, but... Uh,
0: <laughs> uh, but you, you're talking about a barbecue, right? A British grill, the heat goes in at the top. Uh, it's like um, kind of like a toaster, uh, so that you have like a heating element in the top of the yeah, oven, yeah. and yeah. yeah, so the, the top of the oven broiler. becomes very, very hot, and then the the air, the air underneath is quite cool.
1: Yeah, on this side of the pond, we call that a broiler. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but yeah, so it's heated from the top, um, so that so the warmer layers are sitting on top, and that basically means that it's very, very stable.
0: And that's because uh, it's heated by ultraviolet, right?
1: Yeah, so the ozone in the stratosphere absorbs ultraviolet from the sun.
0: And of okay. course, you know,
1: protects us from skin cancer and all of that.
0: And, and, why, and why, why does that happen, just to get you know a bit into the environmental background of it? What,
1: That's just what, basically what, the wavelength bands that the ozone molecules absorb.
0: But why does it only happen in the stratosphere and not the mesosphere above?
1: Because uh, there's not enough ozone up there
0: okay so the atmosphere is so thin at the top it doesn't really absorb it much of anything right yeah yeah yeah, exactly okay
1: and then once, you and get once it gets a bit thicker it starts to absorb a bit more
0: warms yeah. up and then because the light is very intense the ultraviolet light is very intense at the top and is attenuated as you pass down through the stratosphere most of the warming is concentrated in those upper layers even though they are a bit thinner right yeah yeah okay so the
1: stratosphere is way more stable that's the whole yeah. reason that this approach works if you tried to put aerosols into the troposphere they just rain out very quickly i mean they do cool because yeah, the they get
0: mixed up with rain clouds and dissolve into the rain and then they'd end up in the sea right
1: yeah but you need a heck of a okay. lot to cool the planet that way whereas as yeah, soon as people, get so people talked about doing regional
0: geoengineering in that way but it, it wouldn't make sense to do it on a global level right
1: no i mean it would be well it'd be inefficient it would also because you'd have to put so much in there'd be huge health consequences to it as well
0: yeah yeah toxicity issues from the sulfur raining out so you're you're talking about so you you put the material in uh, up to sort of 25 kilometers being you know somewhere around the optimum but why isn't say 27 the optimum or 30 the optimum because that's not the end of the structure is it how how tall does it go
1: so it's primarily i guess i'd say we haven't really explored the upper end but uh if you put it too high the sulfate basically evaporates so so these little
0: sulfate droplets. What 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 are they? Let's let's be clear on them. So you're talking. The, you're saying the sulfate evaporates. So my understanding is that these are you know, fairly concentrated sulfuric acid droplets. Is that right? So you've got it's H two S O four in an aqueous solution. Is that broadly correct?
1: Yep. Yep. You know, absolutely wonderful thing to stick in the atmosphere. Of course. Um, okay. We lot. Uh, there's so lots of issues evaporate. associated with that, but. Uh, right so what a volcano dumps into the stratosphere is sulfur dioxide gas so2 yeah. that oxidizes in becomes sulfate aerosols so like you said so that- why,
0: why does it why does it also ox- i mean you say it becomes sulfur sulfate aerosols so you're starting off with so2 and then you end up with h2so4 so it's added um uh y- you've added uh, two oxygen and two oh. hydrogen so Talk me through the chemistry of that and how that happens because that's relevant to the life, lifespan. So where do those two oxygens come from? Obviously, water's H2O. So is it adding one H2O molecule and then adding half an O2 molecule? How does this process actually happen from a chemistry point of view?
1: Yeah, the chemistry process, it's actually uh, OH radical. Okay, so it's so a radical
0: chemistry, right?
1: Sunlight breaks the H2O molecule and then the OH bonds with the SO2
0: okay so it takes two radical oh um uh sub molecules and then they um and then they join it right
1: that process that oxidation process takes about a month and then the lifetime of those so now you've got liquid droplets yeah very small liquid droplets that reflect sunlight the gas doesn't do doesn't reflect anything um and the lifetime of the droplets is of order a year
0: and so why mm-hmm. does that why do the droplets evaporate over a certain well, So, what evaporates you've got the you put sulfur dioxide in if you if you're doing it that way or sulfuric acid droplets if you're doing it that way. Um, and then what, what evaporates is it the sulfur dioxide uh, sorry that the, the sulfuric acid evaporates out of the water droplets is it the water droplets themselves that evaporates what what, what why does it break down when you go too high. I think
1: every I think everything evaporates just because the partial pressure drops, but you're you're, you're okay. starting so to get like out of my expertise.
0: <laughs> okay, so you're almost in space. It's like you kind of like your blood boils when you're in space. Yeah. Similar yeah. process, right? Yeah. Okay. So so, so, you, so
1: you know, in some sense, you don't want to go too high because you'll run into that. Yeah. And you want to be far enough away from the tropopause. So the stratosphere yeah. is stable, but there is still circulation, there is still flow. So once any droplet gets relatively close to the tropopause, it can get mixed into the tropopause and then it's out of the stratosphere and it's not doing Okay.
0: It. So you've got a kind of sweet, sweet spot or sweet band in the middle where you're not so high, you risk boiling away and you're not so low, you risk falling into the sea, right?
1: And there's a second issue that's a little bit more subtle, but uh, the stratosphere right now is pretty dry. There's not much water vapor in it. Yeah. Um, the... if you use sulfate aerosols they also heat the stratosphere and if you warm the tropopause the reason the stratosphere is dry is because the water vapor freezes out at the tropopause so if you warm the tropopause you wind up getting more water in the stratosphere and that's a greenhouse gas and you say
0: freezes out i mean my understanding is that water in the stratosphere the droplets these droplets you're proposing to put in they're not frozen are they so why would why would they freeze out of the tropos- tropopause I, I wasn't aware that the tropopause yeah, trop- was associated with uh, a change in the state of water you get ice crystals in cirrus clouds in the tropopause so what's so special about tropopause and ice formation
1: uh, it's the coldest point in the atmosphere or coldest point in the lower atmosphere
0: yeah but it's not right. always a freezing point is it
1: um or is well- it Free, you know, freezing point depends on pressure and temperature, right? And humidity. Okay.
0: So what's typically, so you I mean, there's a the... lot
1: of the water vapor. So, so the air in the stratosphere originally yeah. came from the troposphere. And it so you get warm air rising in the tropics. It gets to the troposphere by that point, It to the tropopause. At that point, it's cold enough that the, a lot of the water vapor freezes out. Okay. and then. So is the, the at a similar temperature all around
0: the world? Or does it matter what latitude you're at?
1: Uh, The altitude depends considerably at the latitude, and that actually is a relevant factor when we think about
0: Yeah, so in the Arctic, it's more like 19, 18 kilometers, and in the tropics, it's sort of 20, 22, isn't it, roughly?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the tropopause itself actually gets down more like eight or nine kilometers in the Arctic.
0: Oh, I didn't know know it went that It actually
1: gets quite a bit low. Quite a bit lower when you go. Okay, ahead and
0: so that. But help me understand the temperature profile. So is the is the temperature of the stratosphere in the the tropopause in the Arctic pretty much the same as where it is in the equator, or does does it make you know is it you kind of have it in your I have it in my mind that the atmosphere is warmer above the Sahara than it is above the North Pole, right? But maybe I'm wrong. So is the is the temperature of the tropopause fairly constant all around the world or not
1: um that's uh, be, beyond my expertise okay well uh, no worries we're grease monkeys Google, you don't have
0: to know clever things like that so
1: yeah people um, tells me it's minus 50 celsius over the poles and minus 80 celsius over the equator
0: <laughs> well that's weird so the troposphere the tropopause is actually colder yeah. over yeah. the equator than it is over the poles
1: Yes, you'll need a proper atmospheric scientist on. on oh,
0: okay, your, we'll uh, get we'll get one of those on there. That sounds pretty interesting. I'd love like to know more about that. Um, but, so, uh, okay, you, but, you painted so the picture we, we of be... where we need to get this material to. Yeah. So w- what are we lifting and shifting? Talk, talk to me about, you know, the physical size of this material. So I know it's megaton um, scale, but, you know, what conceptualize a megaton for me. I mean, in terms of Olympic sized swimming pools or holds of airliners or whatever, what, you know, help me understand what a megaton or five megatons or whatever it is that we're lifting is.
1: I mean, I think some of the uh, original uh, calculations on this pointed out that a couple of fire hoses going continuously is the sort of volume you need.
0: That's really small for a whole planet, right?
1: Yeah. So, okay. You know, you're talking, you know, build a bunch of big airplanes, but if you had, you know, even if you built like 10 airplanes and you just constantly flew them up to the stratosphere and down uh, many, many times a day that's so, the sort of scale you would need to be making a dent. I mean, in 10, 10
0: airplanes, airplanes is a very small fleet. I mean, I've heard numbers banded around, perhaps in, incorrectly, of much, much larger numbers, like orders of magnitude, larger numbers of aircraft being needed. Yeah, so depends, who's it right how much on you're on cooling,
1: right? So, so like, you know, with an order like 10 airplanes flying around, flying up and down all the time, you could probably make a dent in the temperature. If you really yeah. want to cool by degrees Celsius, then it's a small airline, but it's still a small airline
0: okay so you know, hundreds of planes that kind
1: of thing yeah. right yeah and the okay. default assumption i would still say is sulfur dioxide gas because that's the one that we understand best but you could in principle also loft sulfate aerosol directly there's advantages to that
0: yeah i wanted to go into and that other so,
1: materials but- you could use other than sulfate which also have advantages but you know, have the drawback that they don't occur naturally with volcanic eruptions. Okay. And so it's a so lot. You're, less you're,
0: you're kind of racing ahead. So, so my understanding okay. of this is that the um, is by injecting uh, sulfur dioxide gas. You, the limiting um, issue is the uh, the extent to which the um, uh, the particles are formed um, and are not subject to to condensing, um, be, uh, to to coalescing and and, and rain out. because they grow over time, right? And my understanding is that you need to inject seasonally in order to uh, not have a problem with um, the particles growing too large and falling out. So do you want to talk firstly about the aerosol lifetime? And secondly, about the optical physics of these particles, because that's kind of central to making all this stuff work, right?
1: Yeah, so there's a optimum size for the aerosols. And with if you inject SO two, you don't really get control over the final size distribution.
0: Okay. So but when um, we'll talking about the particle size, so what 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 what's the issue with the particle size? What why is it important and how, how is the how big are they? So
1: um, fundamentally it's just related to how big the particle is relative to the wavelength of light.
0: So are these particles, do they look like they're a different color if they you know, do do they appear a different color if the particles are larger or smaller or, or do they always just look white or if you what would they look like
1: uh, i mean the the biggest issue overall is simply the physical size dimensions of the particle right so so surface area is what reflects but uh what you need to put up there in terms of mass scales with the volume and so okay. if you, the the first order effect is if you have bigger particles you have a smaller ratio of surface area to volume so yeah. you need more material to get the same amount of reflection so that's the dominant okay. issue
0: so it, we can use much less material if we make smaller droplets because the inside of the droplet isn't doing any work it's the surface of the droplet that's yeah. doing the work With, right
1: within reason until you start getting small compared to the wavelengths of light that you're
0: trying to but in make. terms of the size of the particles help me understand you know how they look if if i could watch these floating in a bottle right would the big ones look red and the little ones look blue or how would it work
1: i mean just think they look like a drop little tiny droplets of water
0: basically okay but why why would they reflect different wavelengths why do they um
1: well only only when you start getting small compared to the wavelengths of light okay if you're if if, i mean that's really really really
0: small i mean just can you give us an idea i mean i know that people talk in microns but you know i don't have a micron ruler in my house so even as an engineer i have trouble conceptualizing what a micron is so firstly what is the optimal size of the particle in terms of microns uh
1: i think it's of order a little less than a micron is sort of the ideal
0: okay and what can i what what would i find in my house that's a a micron is um a millionth of a meter is it so so it's a thousandth of a millimeter is that right
1: yeah so uh human hair is about 70 microns
0: Okay, so if you've got seventy of these particles lined up end to end, then they'd be about the width of a human hair. Yeah. And is there anything that I can? Is there anything you can think of that is a micron? So one of the things I, I've noticed, like um, when I get out of the shower, if I've been in the shower for a while, you get kind of steam in your bathroom, right? And occasionally, you can see the individual steam droplets as they go under the lights and catch the light. So is it is is a, a like a It's not really steam because it's not over boiling point, but let's just call it steam for for now. So is an individual steam particle that you can see floating in your bathroom light. Is that about the size of one of these sulfur sulfur aerosols or is it much larger or much smaller or what?
1: If you can see it, it's, it's much, much
0: larger. Okay. So we're talking about things that are far smaller, even than the steam particle in your bathroom, right?
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, And basically that's the reason that this works because you're, so you basically get such a substantial surface area uh, and therefore relatively small amount of mass can reflect enough sunlight to meaningfully cool okay. the planet.
0: So it's, it's, it becomes a very efficient process because you've got essentially, a, a, a it's like having a, a parasol sheltering the earth, but that parasol is only of the order of a micron thick, right? So yeah. it's like the world's thinnest bit of silver foil right um okay so these as long as you put in the particle as long as you put in the sulfur dioxide seasonally then this um uh, layer of uh particles will form uh, at roughly the right size and you won't they won't grow too much my understanding is that they grow too much if you keep putting the sulfur dioxide in so if you do it every month um and then um you, you have a problem because the sulfur dioxide just condenses on the existing particles. It doesn't form new ones, right? That's the problem you have, is it not?
1: Yeah, so there's definitely an advantage to putting it in seasonally, is we think that that will ultimately reduce in smaller aerosol droplets.
0: Okay.
1: Um, Keep in mind that our models for this are calibrated to some extent on what happens looking at observations after a large volcanic eruption which is typically pulse, a, pulse. a pulsed
0: yeah. input right
1: yeah so as soon as you get into the question of what happens when you start adding more sulfur dioxide to a stratosphere that already has a lot of sulfate aerosols you're into a region where we don't directly have observational evidence to.
0: yeah because we don't have many times where you get you yeah. know toba and tambora in the same year right
1: yeah so we're start, so, as a result of that, we have different climate models predicting fairly substantial differences in how big the aerosols grow. And that's you know the number one issue in terms of how much do you need to put in to get a given
0: cooling. So we there's, there are quite big uncertainties because we don't have this well-constrained environmental modeling, right?
1: Right, right. Okay. And there's also some evidence that if you put, uh, you get better control of the size distribution, if instead of putting in sulfur dioxide gas, you actually directly put in um, the sulfate aerosol droplets straight out the back of the aircraft.
0: Okay. So we don't um, have a, a clear understanding of, of how much we might need. But one thing that is worth mentioning from what you've said there is that the um, the numbers of aircraft that we might need to do the distribution um, is gonna scale um, as a function of the shrinking of the time, right? Because if you have only got ten percent of the year in which you can do your injections, you're going to need ten times as many airliners, right?
1: Well, so I would say all of these seasonal strategies have just barely begun to be explored. Okay. But you don't—that's not nec- what you said—is not necessarily true. If you could say inject at one part of the planet for a month and then go move all of the airplanes to a different. Oh, planet right.
0: Planet okay. So planet. you're doing in and strips, then move them right back
1: to the first place right
0: so okay yeah i hadn't and, thought of that
1: and it is entirely plausible that you'd basically look at that from a cost perspective and say you know what the added benefit just isn't there let's just inject throughout the whole year because, continuously okay so before.
0: i wanted to ask you about um the so let, let's assume that we're not going to be injecting um anything too novel uh, or we we might come back to that later but talk i'd like to talk about the injecting uh, the direct particulate injection so how i understand this is you've got um you you take up your sulfur or sulfur dioxide that's you know pre-oxidized so there's one there's one design i think david keith spoke about um taking up liquid sulfur and then oxidizing it on board and then reforming that so2 to so3 and then ejecting that from the aircraft so talk to me about how you might go about forming these um uh, di- the direct formation of, of particles. If you weren't going to be doing sulfur dioxide injection, you were going to actually try and inject sulfate particles that you form either on board the airliner or in the airliner's wake directly. So, talk, talk, talk to me about how that might be done.
1: Yeah. So the right. So you you could loft sulfur, sulfur dioxide, or SO four. The oxygen. So four. Is what?
0: What's SO four? That's not a thing, is it? Uh,
1: Basically, that's H2SO4, if you want. Uh, Okay, right. The the hydrogen doesn't add much weight, but the oxygen really does, right? So the smallest amount of weight would be if you carry the sulfur, burn that on the airplane to produce SO2, and then uh, again, if you want... So how would you burn it? I mean, would that
0: involve you injecting the sulfur into the flame cans in the jet engines or would you have some kind of separate burner unit on the plane that would scoop up atmospheric air and, and burn the sulfur in in flight
1: yeah, so you'd need a separate uh engine because the sulfur itself is so corrosive that the engine you're going to use for thrust would get destroyed by that
0: okay so you need uh, a sort of I sulfur barbecue that you carry up th- into the atmosphere my, right
1: you know there's only been one paper on this subject I'd say it's a little preliminary to jump to conclusions. But my guess, my understanding from that paper is that the weight, it's actually less weight to just carry up what you want rather than trying to carry up sulfur. And then you've got to transport all the kit. Okay. So you don't want to carry
0: a factory with you and it's easy just to carry the stuff. Yeah. So I guess that one of the big, the big advantages of injecting sulfuric acid and i learned this from the team at Delft that came to do a presentation at one of the conferences i was at um, is that if you if you're injecting sulfuric acid although you're carrying around a lot of extra um, atoms that you don't really want to be taking up because you only need to take the sulfur up because you can have such fine and um, successful in theory control over the size of the droplets you actually end up taking less stuff up overall because you have the advantage of producing precisely the droplets you want rather than droplets like baseballs that you uh, just fall out of the sky too quickly, right?
1: That is plausible, but my guess is that that's probably not true, right? So my, my guess is, you know, and it's a guess. My guess would be that by putting in the droplets in the right size, you get some benefit, but not a factor of two benefit. Okay. But the answer to that question is currently uncertain and is going to be dependent as well on how much cooling you're trying to do.
0: So, so one, the, you know, one of the many research questions that we could ask answer if people just simply get out of the way and let us do the research that we need, right? Yeah.
1: So if you're doing a relatively small amount of cooling, then the coagulation issues with sulfur dioxide gas are probably a lot smaller. And okay. so the relative benefit of going to H2SO4 injection is probably less.
0: So if, if we're um, looking at HSO2, uh, I mean, I remember, you know, around 10 years ago when this sort of work started to come out, that it looked like there might be some kind of real cap as to how much of this cooling we could do. So if you were injecting SO2, do we get to a point where, you know, after a degree, degree and a half cooling, or whatever, we just simply can't do anymore. Because as you add more gas in, all it does is it strips out the existing particles that you've added, and doesn't really, you know, do much to form any net gain. Uh, you know, to give a countervailing point of view, I think it was Robot that was talking about that. But to give a countervailing point of view, I think David Keith was saying that you could potentially freeze the Earth right down to a snowball. So, who's right?
1: Um, there is one model that said there's a relatively low, relatively low limit to how much cooling you could get of, uh, but the other climate models that have used this- When you say
0: relatively low limit, as in you can't cool much, right?
1: Well, you can't cool more than a degree or two, but that's maybe that's plenty. So even in that pessimistic model, it might not be a problem. And in most of the other climate models, yes, it's nonlinear, but uh, like the model I'm most familiar with, you can cool the planet by four degrees Celsius, and you're still pretty much in a linear regime.
0: So and... you'd still, you you wouldn't be hitting limits of coalescence of particles and um, uh, SO2 condensing primarily on existing particles rather than forming new ones. You you could go, you know, up to four degrees and potentially beyond
1: yeah and and you know hopefully we're not in that situation and
0: well you might say that but I'm, I'm not personally convinced i mean my my concern is that the the big risk that we face um from climate change you know people go on about temperature and agricultural adaptation and things like that but my concern is primarily sea level rise and the big issue with sea level rise is when we look back into deep time we see absolutely huge increases in sea level rise i can't remember the numbers but i think is somewhere in the order of about 70 meters of sea level rise that we've got if we melt out all the ice is that right
1: uh yeah that's a, the right ballpark i think yeah i a mean good... 70 meters
0: of sea level rise i mean that's like bye-bye britain basically there would be not a lot left of the uk if if sea level rise was that was that large um and certainly cool. all of the low-lying areas of the southern united states would be in the drink as well florida louisiana um all of those kind of areas would be underwater at, at, with those kind of rises. You, you know, that we'd, we'd lose very, very, very substantial amounts of terrestrial so, so geography if we lost that. So, my
1: keep in mind my, my, that, that that you're lo- you're talking about thousands of year timescales, right?
0: No, I understand that. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I I
1: agree with you that I actually think sea level rise is probably the biggest concern. But on the century scale, that sea level rise is, you know more likely to be in measured in meters not tens of meters
0: no i understand that but the point i make i mean it, even a, a sea level rise of a few meters which i, mean, I think my, oh, my it's, still dev- it it's still can,
1: devastating we can, but yeah well, we they,
0: can, my, my view is we can still plan sensibly for between one and three hundred years i mean when we build major civil infrastructure we don't assume that all our bridges and roads and um Canals and stuff will be destroyed in a hundred years. We build them for longer periods of time than that, right? Um, and you know, guess, if you look around.
1: My my point, much more broadly, would be, you know, we hopefully will cut our carbon emissions, and so we will never, even if you wanted to overcool relative to today's climate. You're not, hopefully, never needing to do four degrees of cooling.
0: Well, I'm not. I'm not sure that's right, Doug. Let let me explain the the logic. But even if the the issue way ice, well, it certainly is a long way away. But the concern I have is that even if we can cool all the way back to pre-industrial, then we might have set in motion um, ice dynamics feedbacks, which mean that the uh, the sea level rise becomes unstoppable at that point, when large parts of Antarctica or Greenland just inevitably end up in the ocean. Um, albeit over several hundred years now and i don't think that it's inconceivable that future generations might want to cool very substantially below pre-industrial and there are you know some economic models that are already coming out based on overcooling kate ricky did one which was quite influential on my thinking i don't know whether it'll be you know i have questions about the the, how realistic those highly (laughs) overcooled models are but it doesn't seem to me staff that people might (laughs) want to do these very great cooling
1: Well, you, don't, you don't agree? Well, I just don't agree that it's a research priority in the very short term.
0: No, I understand, that, but, but my point is simply that it's useful to know the limits of the technologies right, we're building, right?
1: Right, right. But, but we've got a long time to find out what those limits are. And uh, the bottom line, as I said, is yes, there is exi- at least one model that says that limit is more like a couple of degrees of cooling. And the other models say that limit is... Uh, at least four. And I think there's reason to believe that, you know, even if someday we did want more than four degrees of cooling, you can always just change material.
0: Okay. So before we go on to the changing material, which is a really interesting conversation, I just want to ask um, one thing about the, um, the design of airlines, uh, uh, the aircraft that delivering this uh, material. Um, so can you just help people get in their minds that the kind of uh, differences between the volumetric flow of the jet fuel and the volumetric flow of the um the sulfurous material that's been injected so are you in a situation where the sulfur is like a dribble and the jet fuel is like a flood as you're flying along or are you in a situation where you're you know more like a a forest fire plane where you're stuffing this material out the back as quickly as you possibly can and the, the 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 fuel flow to the jet engines is relatively modest by comparison
1: um it's definitely in the latter category
0: okay Um, so you're really squirting hard right yeah
1: well relative to how much you need for your propulsion system yes okay but again that also depends on how you're releasing things so one of the advantages of sulfur dioxide is that you're just releasing a gas and so, presumably, you can just get up to altitudes and pretty much open a valve and...
0: And dump the whole lot in one guy. I was talking lot. specifically about the uh, inject the direct particle injection, uh, which I understand needs kind of steady-level flight yes. for quite some so time. Then you,
1: need to, you, you, still, you need to dribble it out over time, but I think you're still talking vastly higher rates than what's going out your
0: engines. Into the engines. Okay,
1: but, fine. But now you're in a realm, again, where there is no real strong basis to trust the models because there's no data to constrain them
0: okay and th- th- these are so you know this is where the paucity of engineering work is really starting to constrain it so it, let, let's imagine that we're doing this direct particle injection which is an interesting concept so talk me through the the, the flight process. So I'm, I'm in something which is what, the size of a 737 that you go on holiday on, or much larger, or much smaller, or what?
1: I think that's an optimization that hasn't really been done, but, you know, probably somewhere between a 737 and a
0: 747. Okay, so once you, you know, get mid big, to large 747 airline,
1: right? Yeah, I mean, once you get too big, you start having too many issues with runway length and things like okay, that. Okay,
0: right. And so I, I take off, and let's assume that this is a manned plane for now, although it's perfectly possible that we might end up moving towards drones. So I, I, I take off, and how long does it take me to fly to the altitude that I would need to get to? I mean, uh, on, when you go on holiday, it takes about 40 minutes to fly to a cruising altitude, doesn't it?
1: Um, shouldn't, take, shouldn't take quite that long. But uh, um, for these types of aircraft, because they uh, – because the air is less dense at high altitude, when you're at the high altitude, your engines aren't very efficient. They don't generate much thrust. The flip side of that is, now you need to put a lot more engine on it just so that it can work at altitude, and you've yeah. got a huge amount of thrust at takeoff. So, so these take things like,
0: look a it, bit more like um, they, look, they look like old seaplanes, don't they? The geoengineering planes with big straight wings and huge oversized engines that are often placed over the wing from what I recall.
1: That that was the Delft design, but the design that's come out of some of the other groups looks an awful lot more like a conventional airplane Okay, um, with swept wings and so forth. Um, Part of the reason for that difference results in some differences in assumptions of what the mission looked like, but, uh, broadly, you would be able to zoom up to altitude probably in like eight to 10 minutes. And it's so a really highly,
0: almost like a not, not that far off a rocket climb. I mean, a rocket would probably take one or two minutes to get up into the stratosphere, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah. So really, really fast climb. And okay. then depending on if you're releasing sulfur dioxide gas, you would basically just dump it and yep. it quickly and come back down and re- refill. Uh, If you're releasing H2SO4, then you need to release that at some steady flow rate. We don't really know what that flow rate would need to be. Um, Okay. And so you would need to loiter at altitude for some period of time, which makes the engineering a lot, lot harder, um, and then come back down. And it also means that you need a lot more airplanes because you are...
0: Uh, really, mission, more slowly, the flight not, time's longer, right?
1: Yeah. Right. Okay. Like and you can, you, if you can you, imagine you if you're doing it. SO2 that, you know, you could do a sortie every hour practically.
0: So if you fly up and then you dump the SO2, I mean, it, you, you take it up, what, as a gas, it would it be just like a, or would it be a supercritical fluid or would it be a liquid, would, which is above boiling point or what, how would it work?
1: You, you would compress it so that it's a liquid probably just because of okay. reasons. And so that does mean that when you're at altitude, you know, you're going to be a little, it's not going to be quite instantaneous. You're going to basically boil it off. And would you have to put energy
0: in or would you take it up hot and then it would just cool down as it went out of the valve or what? I
1: don't think, I don't think the temperature, I don't think there's enough energy stored in the temperature of it to matter. Um, Take it up cooler, you don't have to pressurize it as much and okay uh, but
0: wouldn't it but wouldn't it then just um turn to snow in the tanks as soon as you uh because it would chill as a result of the decompression
1: well you make valves would
0: be all gummed up with snow wouldn't they
1: i don't think anybody has ever looked at any of that
0: that's kind of important i'm really surprised that no one has i mean it's just basic sort of gas table stuff isn't it
1: i would personally i would assume that you can build a big enough valve um you know just open up the tank completely
0: <laughs> yeah but wouldn't but, it? Just...
1: but the honest answer is no nobody's ever looked at any of this
0: that's astonishing i'm amazed that someone hasn't got a gas table out and worked out the temperatures and pressures and stuff like yeah, even there's as a...
1: only a couple of people who've even looked at the aircraft design and most of that has been essentially volunteer effort
0: okay um
1: well the... we ought to In we ought effect. to get a gas
0: table out because that ain't complicated that's first year engineering stuff looking at that kind of stuff so um yeah that's a that's another project uh so just for transparency doug and i have done a paper together um we ought to just get that one on, on the tape for record um so turning back to the issue of particles so i know that david keith has got some um uh, really quite fancy ideas for um, some amazing uh, particles that could uh change the way that we think of stratospheric sulfur geoengineering because he's using the photophoretic effect isn't it in, in his uh, design at least?
1: <laughs> yeah that was a fun paper um i don't think that's anywhere near term but is at least evidence that you know if you were going to sustain this for 500 years or a thousand years there's no way that 500 years from now we would be using sulfate
0: okay so we would, we would just, be doing talk, talk, like talk to me for a moment about david's fancy pants particles how what <laughs> are they and how do they work
1: um so so the, the this is the fancy idea of self levitating particles which are also a little scary because then it's not necessarily reversible um there's a there's a kids toy where you have really really thin um pieces that are black on one side and white on the other side um and so when you shine light on it on the white side it reflects the sunlight on a black side it absorbs it and that photo that uh creates enough pressure uh to produce a small force and so if it is lightweight enough that can actually uh cause it to So much. which way do they fly can, is it
0: black side up or black side down
1: um i guess it should be black side down right um now i can't remember i think I remember it's black remember side reading the paper that, sure. yeah you got to be right it's got to be black side up
0: so basically haven't at, you're, you I haven't you're, thought about this
1: paper in 10 years right
0: okay so, so it's so like the a thermal, was, thermal effect like a fire so you've got like a low pressure region um because the fires um uh, heated the air the air is expanded and then it's so you've got like an updraft but, coming off the particle and the particle basically gets caught in its own own updraft right
1: yeah so so the the paper was in pnas oh like 10 years ago maybe yeah it was a long time uh, ago on photophoretic effect and the short answer is that it is conceivable to design and manufacture a uh, sort of engineered particle uh, that would be self-levitating. Literally so magic
0: could, fairy dust, that's so brilliant. That
1: you could, instead of having to replenish it by constantly putting new material up every year, it would just stay there as long as you wanted.
0: But wouldn't it eventually migrate towards the poles and just fall out from aerodynamic effects?
1: uh I mean, they're not going to lift
0: it, in the polar winter are they
1: depends if you have some additional ability to uh angle the force um so i could certainly imagine that there's some way that you could you could engineer these things to tilt as well as levitate put a okay. side force. so side they're like they're the
0: kind force. of flying like sycamore seeds through the air right
1: but i think you know the short answer is this was an entertaining idea that was written down. Nobody's done anything with it. Nobody's thought about it in any detail.
0: All engineering starts with entertaining ideas that yeah, no, I mean, it's
1: um, you know, much more realistic in the near term would be materials like calcite or chalk.
0: And so so calcite is basically just ground up limestone, is that right?
1: Right. Yeah, it's chalk.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I mean, that's not an alien particle. There's a lot of that in the atmosphere. We breathe it in all the time because rocks get worn down by all kinds of mechanical forces, both anthropogenic and uh, natural. So, um, don't,
1: though, have micron scale calcite in megaton quantities existing in the stratosphere?
0: No, certainly not. But equally, you know, in terms of the human health effects, this is something that isn't novel in the environment. I mean, we breathe in rock dust all the time and we don't all die from it
1: yeah i think there's good reason to suspect that it would be environmentally benign okay but the- so i've also heard
0: of titania being used which is so just to give us the so uh uh so it's CaCO 3 isn't it calcium carbonate yep. yep that's limestone right so that's chalk or limestone or whatever lots of different formulas for that uh 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 you know inc- incarnations of that, um, and there's also um, titanium, which is TiO2, isn't it? Yep.
1: Yep. Same thing you put in your sunscreen.
0: Okay. Uh, and other other particles in sunscreen that make sunscreen white, comparably sized to the particles we'd have to put in uh, the stratosphere, or is it very different?
1: I no clue. I'd have to go look.
0: at okay, it. Okay. Fine. So. Um, um, and what, and what what any would... of
1: these are basically dealing with. So, sulfate has uh, a couple of problems. So, the advantage of sulfate is just we know it works from looking at volcanoes. Yeah. Um, the disadvantages, uh, you know, you could list a bunch of them. One is it's not really that good a backscatterer. So, in addition. So, to to me, so scattering forward
0: scattering light, and backscattering, what are these?
1: So, it's basically sulfate scatters light in all directions. So, in so a st- little bit
0: like having a. Um, uh, a, a, like a lampshade that no matter what yeah. angle it is lit from, it will radiate the light out in all directions. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, in order to scatter, say, 1% of the light back to space, you wind up having to scatter about 10% of the sunlight. um Most of that still comes down to the planet in the form of diffuse light instead of direct yeah. light.
0: So, you have a really big increase in diffuse light to get a very small increase in backscattering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, just to yeah. clarify my earlier point, I wasn't talking about a opaque lampshade i'm talking about more like a, a lantern um type lampshade that's translucent um okay. so these um uh, these other particles that do they have um that and, and this is basically down, down to sort of quantum electrical effects isn't it the the well, this is out, um, out
1: of my expertise altogether but so yeah i have
0: never know? understood this but uh, mm. my uh, my understanding is that titania and calcite backscatter more and then they forward scatter less than the sulfur aerosols, is that right?
1: Yeah, so that's one factor. Uh, a second thing is better control over the size distribution. Uh, and third... why is that?
0: Why, why do we control, why can we control the size distribution better in, say, well, titanium than we can in?
1: That this is a bit of a, a conjecture, but because they're solid, and so you're releasing them as a really fine dust. And as long as that dust doesn't coagulate uh, itself, then the size distribution you release them as is, is the size distribution you get.
0: Okay, reason, so they don't again, tend to change their size distribution. Again, nobody any
1: of the engineering to say whether you actually can release this stuff and not have it clumped together. Okay. Um, um, reason number three is ozone chemistry. So, sulfate, uh, one of the downsides to that is it will do a little bit of damage to the ozone layer.
0: How how does that happen? Why and why is it sulfate that's so reactive?
1: Uh, It's basically um, the acid surface versus calcite being a base. Uh, Okay, and it's the photochemical reaction with chlorine radicals or bromine radicals as the catalyst. So we, as a species, we're dumping all sorts of CFCs in chlorine-containing compounds into the atmosphere. Those last for decades. That's what caused the ozone hole. And until, as long as that chlorine is still in the stratosphere, if you add uh, sulfate aerosols, that provides surface area for that uh, photochemistry.
0: And you're saying that because the calcite aerosols are basic what they react to the chlorine and take it out of the atmosphere or they, they just don't provide the cancer. They don't provide the environment in which that catal- catalysis process can work.
1: Yeah, they just don't pro- they don't uh, provide the, the
0: okay, fine. Well, um, but that's, a, that's
1: also again conjecture because that hasn't really been tested. Um, and then the fourth issue with sulfate is the one that I mentioned a while ago, which is that it heats the stratosphere as well. Uh, And that actually is that because it
0: absorbs uh, infrared directly or what?
1: It absorbs infrared.
0: Okay. And Uh, what effect would warming the stratosphere have that would be bad?
1: So, two things. One is what I mentioned before that if you warm the tropopause, you get more water vapor in the stratosphere. And that
0: uh, because you don't have that sharp temperature dip at the
1: tropopause, right? Cooling that you would get. Um, but the stratospheric heating does affect the surface climate as well. Uh, and it looks like from some of the recent papers. So,
0: what, the surface climate of the Earth or the surface yeah, climate of the particles.
1: Surface climate of the Earth. So okay. it looks, for example, like. One, why is
0: that? Why does it make a difference? What's happening 20 kilometers up? It seems like. Well,
1: because the atmosphere is all coupled.
0: Okay. That's so, a very glib explanation. Can you go into a bit more detail about yeah. that?
1: Well, well, one is just that it alters the temperature gradients in the, the vertical temperature gradient in the atmosphere. So, uh, and that can alter uh, tropospheric circulation.
0: Okay. But is the, pri- is the primary effect that it's absorbing the infrared light or what? Sorry, the the particles directly have the infrared light shining on them and they absorb it because they're black in the infrared or dark in the infrared. They're
1: dark in the infrared. So they absorb some of the infrared and that heats the stratosphere. Okay. So so there's sort of a bunch of reasons to consider other materials. Uh, And these other materials have basically been explored in climate models. But, you know, the short answer is we don't really know. Okay. Um, and there's quite a lot of environmental research
0: and, and distribution yeah. of shirts that has to be done um before we wrap up i wanted to take a you know to briefly touch on marine cloud brightening now obviously this is to some extent a uh, poor cousin of stratospheric sulfur aerosol injection it's not as well studied or as well understood or as l- largely seen as being as promising um for various reasons and you know i don't want to get too deep into that but talk me through the engineering issues that affect marine cloud brightening because this is something that's being at least tried um in in, on a research level engineering test at great barrier reef for regional cooling uh it's an application for global cooling is is much further away right right
1: right i mean the 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 child basic challenge is that we don't understand the physics very well so we know that if you put aerosols like spray salt water and get salt aerosols into the right type of clouds you can make uh, them brighter more reflective we know there's conditions in which that works and we know there's conditions in which you get the opposite sign effect and we don't really understand when and when you get a benefit when you get a harm how that depends on the size distribution of aerosols and so forth
0: Okay, so idea idea about the climate mean, physics being poorly understood and therefore it's seen as being a bit of a wild card, be hard to manage, and therefore people haven't devoted as well, much time to it.
1: Well, it's simply we need the research to understand the physics. Okay. And so it's hard to make much progress on the engineering when you don't yet understand the physics. But broadly the expectation would be now you just need ships, right? A ship is a ship. You don't need to get to the stratosphere okay. and do something you've never done with an airplane.
0: Yeah, I mean, we you have to basically
1: make... spray salt. Water. But they have to be very
0: long endurance, don't they? So they have to be powered by some combination of wind, waves and solar, right?
1: Well, that's a cost trade-off, right?
0: Uh, they, don't ha- okay. they don't have I mean, to But be it's months difficult months. to conceive of a ship that stays afloat for months and months and months unless it's powered by nuclear energy if it's not got renewables on it, right?
1: Well, why does it need to stay afloat for months and months and months?
0: Well, it'd be pottering around in the middle of the pacific ocean thousands of miles away from land right
1: i mean there's nothing to stop us from like sending a ship out to the middle of the pacific ocean for two months and then having it come back and refuel okay that adds i mean that's going to add a small amount of cost in terms of the time that it's not cooling the planet but it's not a and it's going to add greenhouse gases yeah course. i mean you
0: could also send an oiler out to go and meet these relatively small ships and Fill them yeah. up in the yeah. in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, I mean, all of the research that I've seen has been predicated on these um, being quite little ships, more like sort of the large end of a hobby yacht, as far as I understand. Is that a rough scale for the these devices? Uh,
1: that's what somebody has sketched out. I don't think there's any real uh, strong justification, but I don't I don't think there's a reason why you would need a big ship. I yeah, I mean, you it wouldn't make a lot of sense to have off. a
0: super tanker, would it? Because it couldn't. No. You'd be better it's off with a, a bunch it's an of inherently plastic. local effect, right? So it'd top out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you want a bunch okay. of small ships so you're not spraying the aerosols into the same place.
0: Exactly. Okay. But, the, but what you're saying is the, the development of the um, non-fossil propulsion technologies is not a showstopper for these. You could have an oiler that went and followed them around or they could disappear off for a couple of weeks and then come back again and get refueled and yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah.
1: so I think you're the, talking about like basic ship technology, if you wanted combined with the ability to, and the hard part is the nozzle to spray. So if you're basically pumping seawater, you need to filter that seawater perhaps, and then you need to produce a super fine mist with exactly the right size distribution, because if you have even a few really, really large droplets uh, that can- That's the opposite effect, right?
0: Okay, so talk to me about the the, the size of these droplets. I mean, you you talked about micron-scale droplets, so a 70th of the width of human hair being the rough size of the droplets that you need for stratospheric sulfur engineering, okay? So how do the droplets for marine cloud brightening compare?
1: So you should get uh, either somebody like Rob Wood or Lynn Russell on, or you should get uh, uh, talk to one of the engineers like uh, Armin Neukermans. So, Armand is the expert on this. Okay. He's a, a former inkjet uh, person many in his earlier career. Yeah. Um, and he's been leading the effort with a bunch of other retired Silicon Valley people to try to figure out how to design nozzles for this technology.
0: Okay. So, you're mm-hmm. basically talking about something which is like a massive inkjet printer that squirts salt yeah. water into the sky, right?
1: Yeah. Something like that or a snow machine at a ski area. Um, but just much more sophisticated because you have to manage the size distribution of the, of the
0: very product. carefully. Okay. And so my guess is that you're, is you're not the guy to talk to about the nozzle technology. Is that right?
1: Nope. nope not me.
0: Okay. Jolly good. All right. Well, <laughs> just, thanks for I would right just now. pick
1: up the phone and call Armand on that one.
0: <laughs> okay. We might well get him on. So um, just to, uh, before we wrap up, I just wondered if you could give us a bit of uh, uh, history in terms of your own um, background in this field
1: so what Oh, you just muted yourself
0: are you a uh, currently a professor or are you um uh, you're currently at a university is that correct
1: yeah i'm so i'm research faculty at cornell in uh, mechanical yep. and aerospace engineering um okay my phd is actually in aerospace engineering um okay and i work actually did work in industry for a number of years before going back to to University, and uh, David Keith, sort of, I ran into him at some meeting many, many, many years ago, and he's like, oh, cool, an engineer who cares about the climate, uh, and he got me involved in this field, uh, and at some point, I sort of went, you know, wait a minute, this is an engineering problem, and there's no engineers working on it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that hadn't escaped me, being an engineer and having been in geoengineering for, I mean, I can name and put on the fingers of one hand, the people that are working um in this industry or in this research field and uh, and have an engineering background and that's not even using binary um <laughs> so you're you're are you working in this long term or is this a short-term project for you what
1: what um probably until i retire probably probably okay. a little so while you're, after you're, that too you're
0: keen to keep you're keen to keep going in this field right
1: I, I think it's the most important thing i can be working on
0: yeah i'd agree with you on that there's not much more that you can do that uh, um that has a bigger impact for uh humanity or f- quite frankly um is as entertaining for megalomaniac engineers um as doing this kind of stuff well, um, it's
1: a cool problem right like there's just so many interesting uh, aspects to it and you know to get to work on something that's both interesting and relevant
0: i agree uh, that's why i do it despite nobody ever having paid me anything for it ever um <laughs> so uh before i wrap up um you might want to briefly mention the title of a couple of papers um, that we can uh, refer people to if they'd like to learn more about your work. So um, is there anything that you've got in the works or any particularly significant paper? You might wanna mention the ones that you did, you did on the control system. So if you have you any titles and journal um, uh, references that you can bung people's way?
1: So the um, uh, original, Paper on feedback control was a 2014 paper in Climate Dynamics. Um, I don't remember the titles of any of my papers myself. So. Uh, and where was that was published? Th- Do you remember? That was in Climate Dynamics.
0: Oh, in Climate Dynamics, right? Okay, that, that, the yeah. journal as opposed to the field, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've done some more recent work with Danielle Visioni, right?
1: Yep. So um, if you want to know more about the engineering hardware side of things, then actually the paper that you led uh, is the one of the more recent ones on that. And then there's a couple of papers. And what's, the, what's the title
0: of that? So um, you can't expect me an to update on,
1: An update on engineering issues concerning stratospheric aerosol injection for geoengineering that came out this year.
0: And where was that published?
1: In Environmental Research Communications. Okay. And then there's a, on that similar vein, there's a, some papers by wake smith
0: um, yeah i was going to mention those so he's a good egg and by... stuff. he was the, he was the slayer of david keith's engineering is easy theory that he had for a while yeah um, i
1: mean it's still the bottom line would be on any of these things we didn't directly talk about cost but even the higher cost estimates are still tiny compared to the costs compared to the damages of climate change
0: no, I get it. I understand, but the, the the reason that Wake Smith is in in his influence in the field is interesting, is because for you know pushing ten years, David Keith was going on about how the changes. I, I remember uh, only vaguely, but uh, I, I do seem to distinctly remember him saying that the engineering was trivial. And I, having done four years of engineering degree, one thing I can be fairly confident of is that when people who aren't engineers say that engineering is trivial It doesn't with a great deal of hope to be honest uh, in my I, experience it's often not correct so
1: i i would say if you want to inject so2 gas into the stratosphere i'm extremely confident that those engineering issues are solvable
0: they're certainly solvable but there's no off-the-shelf technology that we can go and bolt together today that that yeah. would enable us to go and do it without you know significant design studies and significant engineering attention unless yeah. we're going to be taking wholly unsuitable technologies like naval guns and, and trying to bastardize them to make them do the job, right?
1: Yeah, so there's a really detailed paper that Don Bingaman did in AIAA SciTech last year, uh, and I think they're going to do an update in the AIAA SciTech meeting this year as well.
0: Was uh, this an actual uh, journal paper or was it a conference like proceedings? Conference,
1: or? conference proceedings.
0: Well, I've never seen that, I don't think. So um, yeah, if you could, uh, what's the reference? Have you got full information on that? Uh,
1: I'll have to send it to you. I don't have okay, that.
0: Okay. Well, paper. yeah, if you do, because we can put it in the uh, notes for people. But yeah. briefly, talk about Wake Smith's thing. He, he was fast, he's, he's done some recent work on it, hasn't he? Yeah. So, so his, done, he uh, did an
1: earlier paper where he looked at the costs in the first 15 years, doing a really crude back of the envelope design. And then he just came out with a more recent paper that extrapolates costs out to the end of the century to point out that, you know, the numbers are small if you're talking about like, you know, US. budget, right? Yeah. Is it, this would not be difficult for a major power to do, but the numbers are way more than you could expect. A very small company country to do or a wealthy philanthropist to do by themselves
0: well, this is interesting so well, what, i think what it you're sort you're of shoots there,
1: down uh, a little bit of this idea of a rogue uh, green finger people have called
0: exactly it. what i was going to get onto yeah the idea that you know elon musk or jeff bezos could do this um you know i, I think that i don't think that that's been completely ruled out with the paper because it's not what what, what i think what you were saying there isn't that um, a rogue geoengineer couldn't do this or a rogue country do this, but they couldn't do it on a sustained basis yeah, yeah, um, uh, with the kind of volumes of injections that would be required to completely reverse climate change to do it in a, a more symbolic way. Um, I don't yeah. think it's been ruled out. Is that yeah. correct?
1: Yeah, that, that's fair.
0: And, and one of the things that I think is often missed out on a lot of these engineering studies is that a lot of the monitoring and control is ignored. I mean, it's likely that we would want a, a, a network of specialist satellites or ground observation stations for making sure that we were keeping an eye on all of this yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, situation. Yes. So, uh, you know, I, I think Jesse Reynolds did a paper on um, how that uh, uh, cost profile is often lowballed in estimation because people only look at the, the delivery element of the engineering and not the monitoring and control and feedback element of the engineering, right? Yeah,
1: all, I mean, a, nobody has done a good job of looking at that. I think that's a big hole. But at the same time, if you're talking about spending a few billion dollars a year to bring material up to the stratosphere, you know, spending a few billion dollars on satellite capability will actually go a pretty long way.
0: Okay. Uh, but so, I mean, this is and, all and sort of know, in, when within the context the of a country doing it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I and mean, if, if, if it was just a, a green... rogue green Finger, they're not going to be launching all these satellites with no one to pay for them, right?
1: Well, I mean, if you're if you're imagining a completely rogue scenario, then they're presumably not worried about what's actually happening.
0: might <laughs> it's not bother monitoring it at all, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's um, certainly possible. Well, I just don't think that. that scenario
1: <laughs> is that plausible myself, but uh...
0: no, I, I can see a lot of reasons why it might not be, but. Uh, uh, that's a debate that will run and run um uh, thanks to the whistle stop tour of engineering issues hopefully that will mean that people uh, take this discipline a bit more seriously than they have done and it won't be um as much the unbiased preserve of uh, untrammeled preserve of uh, environmental scientists and social scientists which is a, a frustrating mix for something that has got engineering in its actual name but no actual engineers working on it or hardly any um yeah. is there anything else that you particularly want to cover before we Wrap up, or would you just uh... just
1: a really brief note on the related issue that you know a lot of the climate modeling has been things like oh let's go put material in at the equator because where else we don't know where to put it and there's an entirely related aspect of saying we need to understand where what latitudes you want to put it at what time of year what what's the trade-off with all yeah again
0: Danny Elvizioni has done quite a lot of work on this seasonal injection and um uh injection yeah. at 15 and 30 degrees north and south i think
1: well yeah that started with uh, me and ben and then bringing in the ncar folks to do some climate modeling looking at the effect of different latitudes and then bringing dan in to look at the effect of doing different seasons and we're still doing more work in that area and uh, but that also couples in with the engineering issues in terms of how high you need to get, for example, and can you do this with like two air bases, or do you need to do it with six? That type of
0: thing. Okay.
1: So right. that's the only well, other thing I would add to the subject is is engineering goes goes beyond the sorts of things that we've talked about to sort of how do you design the overall system. How do you monitor it? How do you do attribution? and All of those aspects as well.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah I, I take your point on that. The, the bit that I find fascinating is how do you actually make the make the machine that does the distribution? I, that's my the thing that I find personally interesting because I think that delays in doing that are going to be quite costly in terms of our ability to get the project up and running and and you know changing the world if required. So that's where that's where my mind share goes. Um, it, if you um, just as a final thing before we wrap up, um, you might want to touch very briefly on uh, the paper that you and I did together, you know, not more than a few sentences, but um, uh, just looking at some of the unconventional um, technologies, uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX rockets being you know, one example. But uh, uh, what, uh, if anything, do you think that there might be um, on the horizon if we move away from conventionally powered uh, jet, jet aircraft? What, what could be the future in? so there's
1: lots of like really cool stuff in that area like the the uh you know magnetic railgun type thing where you accelerate something on the earth's surface so that you don't actually have to transport the weight of the propulsion system and wings and all that to altitude if you want my guess as the one thing that might change is that with SpaceX and folks like that trying to really reduce the costs of rocket launch, um, it's plausible to me that designing a dedicated rocket to get to 23, 25 kilometers will ultimately wind up being cheaper than an airplane, um, just because we're really pushing the bounds of what you can get to with air-breathing propulsion and trying to support your Plane with okay,
0: because you, you, ha- you don't have much lift at that altitude yeah. and the air is so thin that you don't get much thrust. And because of the conve- the the limitation, the weight limitations on batteries, it, it makes it hard to, to use battery technology yeah. to reach that altitude if you've got to stay there for any period of time, right? Yeah,
1: and the challenge with doing something like a rocket would be uh, that might be fine if you're releasing sulfur dioxide as a gas, but doesn't work so well if you have to supposed to loiter at altitude.
0: Yeah, anything, anything that has to loiter, unless it's a conventional plane, it gets very difficult, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah.
1: So that'd you be, can't um, use
0: parachutes or anything at that altitude because there's too thin.
1: Yeah, so there's all sorts of really cool ideas, but yeah, it was the my bottom one. line would still be in the near term, it's probably aircraft, and in the long term, maybe, maybe rockets or something else might be relevant, uh, depending on what altitude you're trying to get to. So we, okay. need to, we need to sort that question out too, right? We need to do the climate modeling and say, well, what is the trade-off with altitude?
0: You know, is yeah, 20 is good
1: enough? Do you really want 25?
0: <laughs> well, that's certainly uh, a lot of future work that's in scope there. And it will be, ho- I'm very hopeful that we can get moving on the engineering, which is for far too long been the Cinderella cousin of the, um, uh, of the, uh, or sister of the, more um, well funded and uh, uh, sadly often well regarded disciplines of environmental and social sciences so um, hopefully engineering will get its proper place in geoengineering in due course but uh, for now thank you very much for coming on and uh, look forward to hearing more from you and your various courses and team in due course
1: awesome thanks so much for having me